All right, let's read from Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bow before thee this morning and thank thee for thy daily bread, all the needs that thou dost give us and as we heard in the sermon, help us to transfer our trust preeminently to thee, and do thou bless us and keep us, and help us to pray daily that we might honor and glorify thee in body and in soul for this life and for a better one to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to look for the first time, it probably will take me three class sessions to move through this, at William Googe on Godly Living in the Family. William Googe on Godly Living in the Family. And um, I want to preface this by saying that there is no group of writers in all of church history that are so helpful as the Puritans on marriage and child-rearing. They wrote 29 books. Those days, to write a book was a big thing. If you bought a book, it was like, most people, it was like a whole week's worth of wages to buy one book. And uh, 29 books on parenting and Marriage? That's phenomenal. Um, Their views on marriage and family life were biblical, positive, and lavish. J.R. Packer, who just died recently, writes that the Puritans were the creators of the English Christian marriage, the English Christian family, and the English Christian home. Are there not enough outlines? Oh, 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 sorry. Okay. For the Puritans, marriage was sacred because it was a covenant instituted by God himself. Edmund Morgan, a a recent writer also, summarizes this view of the Puritans. And uh, I'm I'm just going to read this paragraph because it's important to what follows. Every proper marriage since the first was founded on a covenant to which the free and voluntary consent of both parties was necessary. Since time began, no man and woman has ever been allowed to fix the terms, this is the Puritan view, he says, to fix the terms upon which they would agree to be husband and wife because God had established the rules of marriage when he solemnized the first one. And he's made no changes in those rules since then. 
So in the Puritan mind, the covenant of marriage was a promise to obey the rules of Scripture about marriage without conditions and without reservations by both parties. So the goal is just to live a biblical marriage. And by extension, a biblical family. So the Puritans then have bequeathed to us the biblical concept of a well-ordered, happy Christian home where love abounds, abounds between husband and wife and abounds between parents and children. And their biblical vision for the home, I am absolutely persuaded, is sorely needed in our day of self-gratification and disrespect for authority. Our day in which people think family is a place where everybody can do what is right in their own eyes. Now, no Puritan was more important for fostering a well-ordered Christian home than William Gooch. His dates are 1575 to 1653. And among all the books written, all the books written on marriage and family by the Puritans, Gooch's book was by far the most popular. It's 750 folio pages on marriage and family. It's called Domestical Duties. Domestical Duties. If you were a Puritan minister and you were officiating a wedding of a young couple in your church, say in 1650 in Massachusetts, chances are your wedding gift to that couple would be a copy of William Gouge's Domestical Duties. This book sold as many as the other 28 books all combined. It was a staple item. And um, what Scott Brown and I did about five to 10 years ago is we took, we got someone to, to type the whole thing out in modern typeface. And then we went through and we edited every sentence so it's very readable today without sacrificing content. And we published it as three, um, three separate books uh, because it's so big under the title Building a Godly Home. You can get them from RHB as well. Volume one is a holy vision for family life. Volume two is a holy vision for a happy marriage. And volume three is a holy vision for raising children. Now, this, this set of books, or this book, fat book, was first published in 1622. And um, Gooch, in the first part, just walks through the Ephesians 5 passage about marriage and into Ephesians 6 about how to raise children. He's exegeting it for a couple hundred pages. Then the second part deals with the husband-wife relationship, another couple hundred pages. And then the third part, the longest part, deals with the parents and the children. Now, there are a few things in Guja's book that are outdated, obviously. 
But his emphasis and 90, say 98% of his advice, his advice is, is so biblical, so, so timeless. A contemporary writer today by the name of Brett Usher claims that Guj is finally being recognized, this is a quote, as one of the subtlest of early modern writers to articulate the, the concept of companionable marriage. His own marriage was regarded as exemplary and of considerate rather than merely prescriptive parenthood. Considerate parenthood rather than merely prescriptive parenthood. His psychological insights into the nature of childhood and adolescence can be breathtaking in their modernity. He even touches on the questions of child abuse and such like things, a subject effectively taboo until the 1970s. Interestingly, Guj was a father of 13 children, seven sons, six daughters, so he knows whereof he speaks. And more astonishing than having 13 children was that eight of them reached adulthood. It was seldom that in those days a parent could say, I've got eight children that survived all the way to adulthood. The average Puritan family lost 50% of their children. 50%. So if you had eight children, for example, and you lost four of them, how would that impact your life? Say you're 40 years old now and you've, you've buried four children. That's got to impact you in a major way. And so it's not surprising that Puritans wrote all kinds of books on how to cope with affliction. And they were seasoned with spiritual maturity in coping with affliction, also in marriage and family life. <coughs> now what is even more important is that Guj was a godly example himself of the matters that he wrote about. And this is testified from a lot of sources, contemporary sources with him, that this was not just a man who wrote a book. This is a man who lived the book he wrote. He was a very godly man. He had a habit for his entire ministry, I wish I could say I did this, of reading 15 chapters of the Bible every day five after breakfast, five after lunch, and five after supper. He was a disciplined man. His biographer writes that his confessions of sin were accompanied with much brokenness of heart, self-abhorrency, and justifying of God. In prayer, he was pertinent, judicious, spiritual, seasonable, accompanied with faith and fervor like a son of Jacob wrestling with tears and supplications. A fellow colleague with whom he labored in the ministry says, William Googe studied much to magnify Christ and to debase himself. And Googe said of himself, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness, but when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Wow, that's it. That's, 
That's reformed, experiential, biblical Christianity at its best. I see nothing but emptiness and weakness in me. I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. For the last couple decades of his life, Gooch suffered a lot from asthma and from kidney stones. And it gave him a lot of pain. But he, he stayed steady. He said, when people asked him how he was handling his pain, he would say, I'm a great sinner, but I comfort myself in a great Savior. And often when he was in pain, he would say to his wife, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? When a friend tried to comfort him by pointing to the grace he had received, or the many books he had written, his response was, I dare not think of any such things for my comfort. Jesus Christ and what he has done and endured is the only ground of my sure comfort. On his deathbed, he said to his friends around him, death, just imagine saying this, while you're dying, death, next to Jesus Christ, you are my best friend. Because when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus Christ, who is my rejoicing. He died at the age of 78. Just astonishing for that time. Average life would be 45, 50 maybe. Uh, If you lived to be 55, you were considered a senior citizen. (laughs) 78, that's unusual. So what I want to do in a couple couple lessons with you, I, I, I want to set before you Guja's views on, on Christian living, first on marriage, and second on raising children. And I'm going to draw practical contemporary lessons for you from this. So first of all, marriage. Um, Guja did the traditional thing that all Puritans did gave the same three reasons that have long been given for the purposes of marriage uh, under God. And he used the same order that was being used in the Church of England. Number one purpose, the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear, nurture, and admonition of the Lord. Number two, a remedy against sin to avoid fornication. And number three, mutual, as he called it, mutual society help and comfort. That is, we would probably call that today companionship, helping one another in the Lord to live a godly life. Now, Guj was early enough in the Puritans that he kept that same order. I do need to tell you that as the Puritans studied marriage more, they agreed, and that's reflected in the 1640s, a generation later in the Westminster Standards, they agreed that number three should be number one because of Genesis 1. God gave Eve to Adam to be a companion, to be a help meet for him. So that was pre-fall. So they decided that was number one, and I think that's a good move. And then number two is to have children, and number three is for the restraint of sin. 
But anyway, we'll follow Guja's order because that's his order. Um, but I, I had to add that footnote there. Now, so Guja begins by looking at the first purpose of marriage, and that's to have children. And he says, we're called to have children that the world might be increased and not simply increased, but in distinct families that they would be nurseries of cities and commonwealths that the church might be preserved and propagated in the world by a holy seed. Now, that's a long, complex sentence. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't have children, first of all, for your sake. It's not a just a you, and a you and your husband or your hus you and your wife's decision. This is so bizarre <laughs> in our, our selfish age, uh, the way we think. But what he's saying is, you have children, you populate the earth, you fill the earth with children because you want to raise a holy seed for the sake of the church, as well as your own sake, of course. But the church, the city, and you heard the word commonwealth, which is the nation. So when's the last time you sat down with your wife and said, honey, you know, it's been a couple of years since you had a baby, and I wonder if you're strong enough now. And she says, yes, I think I'm strong enough to try again for another child. Well, we'd like to have another child for the sake of the United States of America, that we might have another godly person to help counteract all the evil and for the sake of uh, the church on Crescent Street. Well, we just don't think that way, do we? But that's the way the Puritans thought. You, you have children as God grants them. You, you, you don't, you know, push or force your wife too quickly until she's ready. But you have children as God grants them for the glory of God, but also for the sake of the church and the nation. Interesting thought. <clears throat> and then... Children are always, according to Guj, a gift of God. It's God who opens the womb. The idea of children getting in the way of my plans and my goals is, is it's like a foreign concept to the Puritans. And if you remember that so many of the women died in childbirth, this is amazing. Often a man was left with five, six, eight kids, and he, he'd usually get remarried quite soon. And some of those ministers, uh, they had three, four wives, and, you know, <laughs> like, like Guj, you know, all these children. Guj himself actually had one of his wives, one of his wives died, and then he, well, his wife died, and then he married another. But they ne you, you, you look in vain in their writings to find that you know, children were a negative or children get in the way of a career or anything like that. Children were just like a blessing, a gift of God. God opening the womb. So that's a primary purpose of marriage, to raise a seed for God. Secondly, a purpose of a marriage is to avoid fornication and possess your vessel in honor and holiness as 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says. So, Gooch puts it this way, marriage is a haven to those who are in jeopardy 
of their salvation through the gusts of temptations to lust. Well, that, that's actually a very contemporary sounding statement, isn't it? He's saying that marriage is a gift of God because in marriage you can come together and have this beautiful intimacy legitimately with God's favor in the temptations to fall into some kind of sexual sin are, are, are greatly reduced, hopefully wiped out altogether. And then the third purpose of marriage is that the man and his wife might be a mutual help to one another, Gouge says. A help for bringing forth children, raising them, as well as governing the family. A help for mutual prosperity in relationship. A help for bearing adversity. A help in health and sickness for each other. And therefore, whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. End quotation. So, Guge then goes on to explain that in a good marriage, that help is to be given exactly the way that Paul sets it forth in Ephesians 5. So the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And the wife is to show reverence and submission to her husband as the church does to Jesus Christ. So he says the husband must exercise a true, free, pure, exceeding, constant love to his wife, nourishing and cherishing her as Christ does his gathered people. Since Christ's love for his church is all-encompassing and he gave his entire being for his, his bride, a husband can never love his wife adequately because he's still a sinner and he all falls short of that perfect love. So Christ is your pattern as a husband. You're never able to reach the goal because you're still a sinner, but you're to do the best you can looking to God to help to be as close a pattern to Christ as possible. That's, that's what he's saying. And in doing that, he, uh, turn open just a moment to Ephesians 5. Doing that, he, um, he says a husband is to love his wife in, in four ways. Four ways, Ephesians 5. First, he's to love her um, absolutely. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So he's not to love her halfway. Marriage is not a 50-50 deal. Marriage is a 100-100 proposition. You're to love your wife with the totality of your being. Absolutely. Like Christ. Secondly, you're to love her purposefully. Look at verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. So, think of it this way. On the day of judgment, you will be there, your wife will be there. And your wife needs to be able to say to you on the day of judgment, and to, well, not to you, but to say to Jesus as the judge, Lord Jesus, because of this man leading me as a spiritual leader, washing me with the water of the word, 
Sanctify me by that leadership in family worship and in spiritual conversation. I can say, thank you for giving him to me as a husband because I wouldn't be the godly woman that I am without him. And the husband needs to be able to say, Lord, I present you my bride as part of that glorious church. And I married her to wash her with the water of the word and to sanctify her. Now, this is so radical in our Western culture way of thinking that you can hardly identify with it. I mean, even here in a conservative church, how many of you men actually married your wife in order to sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water? By the, was, was that what that you're thinking about on your wedding day? Um, not most of us, probably. So you understand when I say Puritans are light years ahead of us in the area of marriage. Marriage is not a selfish thing. Marriage is a giving thing. You love your wife purposefully because you, want, you love her who she, for who she is, but you want her to be more godly, and under your spiritual leadership, you want to present her to the King of Kings as a glorious bride. Thirdly, you're to love her realistically, realistically. Notice that verse 27 goes on, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing on the day of judgment. But it does mean, of course, that everybody has spots and wrinkles. <laughs> Everyone has weaknesses and faults, in other words, in this life. Not just your wife, but you too. And so you love your wife realistically. You don't expect perfection. You don't lay too heavy burdens of perfection upon her. After all, she's the weaker vessel. Now today you wonder, is the woman really the weaker vessel? They seem to be pretty strong. But... Uh, in the Bible, it says the woman is the weaker vessel. And therefore, you're not to crush her with complaints when she has some faults or weaknesses. But you're to, you're to be realistic. You too are a sinner. And then fourthly, you're to love her sacrificially, Gouge says. And he, he gets that from verses 28 and 29. You're to love her the way you love your own body. You're to nourish and cherish her that way. So I always use this example that if, if you get something in your eye, you don't just say to your eye, okay, I'll take care of you tomorrow. You, you immediately go to the mirror or you try to get it out or something because you're in pain. And so a man should love his wife sacrificially. The way he loves his own body, if she's in need, he's right there to help her and, and to minister to her. Okay. So that's the man's role. Um, and Gooch says, if you love your wife this way, in these four, four ways, love is as sugar to sweeten the duties of authority which pertain to a husband and respect for your wife, uh, for the wife to the husband, is as salt to season all the duties of subjection that pertain to a wife. Isn't that an amazing statement? Love you husbands, love is a sugar to sweeten the duties of authority which pertain to a husband. And you wives, respect is as salt to season all the duties of subjection which pertain to a wife. Okay, next week, God willing, we will then look at the wife's role 
and probably get into the parenting role as well. Let's pray. Gracious God, please bless this short talk about marriage and its purposes, as well as the man's role to love his wife. And uh, go with us also on future occasions, we pray, as we look at the woman's role and then look at parenting uh, from, from William Googe. Thank thee for the biblicalness of his, uh, of his magnum opus on domestical duties. And may we profit from it yet today. In Jesus' name, amen.